Thanks for joining us at Faith. We hope the message you're about to hear encourages your day and draws you closer to Jesus. If you'd like to join us for service or find out more about the church, visit faith.church. That's faith.church. Guys, as we're continuing our journey through the Bible, it's been great. Let me encourage you. We start strong at the first of the year and we can drift. Um, I can drift, we can all drift. Think about, think about for a second how you were committed that you were gonna exercise every other day or three times a week. And so we're three, four months into the year. And so just as you aren't doing that anymore, maybe we're not reading the scriptures anymore. So let me encourage you to hop back in, begin to engage again in the scriptures. You can go to um, the, the Bible app. You can type in year of the Bible and every month we come out with a new part and we're finishing or in the middle of part three. You can do that. Hop right in. It's going to be a blessing to you. Read it with your family. Sit down after dinner. Say, hey, let's read. You can have them read it. Pray together. Boom, 15 minutes. And you are instilling in them the truth of God's word. And they see, it. hey, this really matters in our family. And so you will not, listen, the word of God doesn't return void. In other words, it doesn't come in our life and leave without a positive impact or effect. Amen. So let me encourage you, jump in there. So we are in this journey, and we're walking through these major events within Scripture that point to the heart of God. Many of these events, events people misunderstand. Many, many times we take these events and we isolate them and we build doctrine and theology around them. That's just wrong because it doesn't, it doesn't fit within the full flow of what God was saying and doing from the beginning. And so we're continuing today with another one of these major events that points to a greater reality. And so we know this, I wanna just a recap for a second. There was a rebellion from God in the garden. Mankind said, God, we don't want you. We wanna do our own thing. They were deceived by the enemy. And so there was a tragic loss. Now, Yes, they lost the perfection of the garden. Yes, they lost the, the, the provision of the garden. But the most tragic thing, the most tragic thing, and I want you to hear this today, that they lost is they lost access to God's presence. They lost access to a relationship with God. And so what we see here in the garden is really a picture of what God, God wanted from the beginning. You were created and you were made for the, same, for the same reason that Adam and Eve were made. And that was to be in a relationship with God and out of that relationship carry out his purposes on the world. We forget that. We think that, oh, God just saves us our dirty old souls and says, well, you got to figure it out. No, no. When we become saved and put our trust and faith in Jesus, what happens is we are restored to our original purpose and calling. And that is to walk and bring the kingdom of God wherever we are, whatever we do, in our workplaces, in our families, and to be aware of that. Most people aren't aware of that. Therefore, it doesn't manifest in their life. But God wants that for us. And so what was lost in the garden, God begins to work his plan to restore it. Adam and Eve are set outside the garden. Angels are set at the entrance to the garden so they can't come back in. 
People wonder why. Why, 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 didn't they, why. why did God do that? Because they were now corrupted and fallen. And God did not want them to eat from the tree of life and then be eternally broken, eternally corrupted. So he kept them from that tree for their own protection. But God begins to work a plan on how to, how to bring mankind back to himself. And it, it started with Abraham, as we've been looking at. God's covenant to him. Friendship with Abraham. Closeness to Abraham. Then it went to his descendants. Then it went eventually to us through Jesus. But today is a glimpse of what is to come. It's what's, what is, this is a picture in this time, in this space that we're going to be looking at, but it's a picture of something greater to come. It's the picture of God beginning to make a way to restore mankind back to himself in his presence. And that begins what we find in the book of Exodus as what's called the tabernacle. For many people, the, the law, the book of the laws, when you read through them in Exodus, and when you, I mean, even in uh, Exodus 26, 27, going to all these details, it's like, good grief. Like, this is boring. This is dry. And some of it is. But the major pieces, the major pieces you need to understand, they're pointing to something that's incredible, is powerful, and will actually transform the way you see your life, the way you see God, the way you see the Bible. And so you need, we need to see the big picture. And we've been looking at the big picture of well, all these major events point to God, pointing to something that's coming, something that's on its way, that's going to actually be greater than even the event that we're looking at. Paul wrote this in his letter to the Romans. He said, for whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction." That through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. But now, so we get to look back and find hope in what was written in the former days. So in, in Exodus, there's really three major events that probably we're aware of. And it's very important to see, to see them and experience God's heart through them. The first event was Passover, which we looked at, which points to a coming better lamb that's going to lay his life down in place of us. The second major event is the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, which is the Feast of Pentecost, which we saw how that was fulfilled in Christ. And the third one that we're gonna look at today is the establishment of the tabernacle or, or what is called the tent of meeting. What many don't realize is that on Mount Sinai, Moses was given, yes, the Ten Commandments, but he was also given many other commands, and many other instructions. And so, as we're looking at the tabernacle today, it's important you, not, you need to understand, before the tabernacle that we're, that, that, that we're looking at today, that is in Exodus 25, and, 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 or the heart of 25, 26, 27, we're not going to be reading all of that, but this is just the big idea, is that there is a tabernacle, that is a dwelling place, it's a, a tent of meeting. But before... We see it in Scripture. There was no established place to set apart for, for God to meet with his people and for God's people to worship him. And so what, what does happen, though, in Scriptures are these moments that took place in people's lives. And so when something major happened, we'd, we read in Scripture that they then made an altar. They created something to, to connect with God and what he did in their life. And sometimes they would make offerings on that altar to say, of gratitude to the Lord. 
When Noah stepped out of, of the ark, once the water re- receded, he expressed gratitude to God and he built an altar there. Abraham built an altar. Isaac built an altar. Jacob, after he wrestled with the Lord and, and he had a dream of descending angels on, on his ladder and, and ascending, he woke up in the morning and he said, surely God was in this place and I didn't even know it. And then he built an altar. So these are altars were built when God came and encountered some, something, boom, something happened in someone's life. But God, after the law was given on Mount Sinai, he asked for something that had never been asked before. And when he asked for it, I want you to hear me today, it reveals his heart to you and to me. Most of us, what we feel and think about God is he, he, he doesn't really want to be near us. He, he dwells somewhere else far off, and when he has to, he, he'll come near, but he really, he's kind of always checking his watch because he doesn't want to be with us that long. We have this idea that, that God would prefer to be somewhere else, or that God would, I mean, when he's around us, he, he's tolerating us. He doesn't really celebrate us. But he loves us, so he, he'll come near, but doesn't really like us, so he leaves kind of quickly. But that's not the heart of God. And that's not God's heart for you. And I, I want you to hear what, what the scripture says about God. Here is God. He's with his people. He's, he's brought them out of Egypt and just like he's brought you out of, your, out of your sin and out of your slavery. And, and this is what he says to his people, Exodus, uh, Exodus 25, after they've come out there at Mount Sinai. He says, let them, and he's telling Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Think about this, the God of the universe requests from his people, a place that he could be among them. This doesn't sound like a God who doesn't want to be around his people. This doesn't sound like a God who's disconnected. This doesn't sound like a God who's far off and not involved. This sounds like a God who's doing everything he can to be close to the people that he created to be close to him. And this is God's heart for you today. And I want you to catch this today, that God is the God that desires to dwell among us. He desires to come in our midst. He desires to move. He desires to minister to you. He desires to, to, to break things off of your life. He desires to tell you over and over and over again how much he loves you, how much he adores you, how much he cares for you, how much you matter to him somewhere in our lives. But we, we have, we've come up with a narrative that that's actually not God. And what, what is truth is we actually act on or become what we believe. And if you believe God does not want to come near, then we don't expect him to come near. We don't ask him to come near. We stay distant from him. But here's the reality. God won't violate our free will, but he is looking for a people who says, God, will you come near? Will you come into my life? Will you come into this situation? Will you fill my, my, my church with your presence 
But what hinders us is we think he doesn't actually want to. Here, this is the old covenant. And God says, can you make me a a place that I can dwell? That word dwell actually can be swapped out with the word tabernacle. That I could tabernacle with my people. A place that God can be with his people. And his people can be with him. And so the families of God, or excuse me, the families of Israel have their own tents. And they're wandering in the desert. And so now, what's interesting, God doesn't say, will you, will you make for me something different than them? He says, will you make for me a tent just like them? A temporary tent. It's almost as though God was connecting this, like all the people have their own tents and they're, and they're just people and they're wandering in the desert. It's, like, it's almost like he was pointing to one who would come and dwell among humanity and take on a, a human body and would be temporary in its body form. But so that that one who would come among would be God with us. And here you have God wanting to come and be with his people. So the old covenant, many times it sets, God set things aside that were to be holy. Everybody say holy. And this is certain times and certain days that what, what happens is as a day that is normal, God does something, and then he sets those days aside, and he makes them holy. In other words, now on these days, this is now holy. But he also does the same thing in places. There are spaces and places that he makes holy. And so what the time set aside is to be holy. I want you to stop. I want you to remember what I did. I want you to, that's holy. This is the time to remember my faithfulness. But he does it with a space and a place. When God called Moses, as we remember the the account out of Exodus chapter 3, and when God's speaking to Moses through the burning bush, he says this, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place, the place, everybody say the place. The place in which you are standing is holy ground. Why is it holy? It was normal, but now it's holy. Now the Bible says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, but there are these moments in time, these moments in time that God comes near and a time and a space that is impacted by his presence and he comes in a peculiar, unique way and those times are special and significant. A peculiar and unique way. This is what we call holy. When God does something in a moment, it's a holy moment. When God comes near in a peculiar, special way, it is a holy moment. It means uh, something has happened in my life that I'm marked by this. This is, this is, a, this is something that, that I'm always going to remember. 
When you go to Israel and you, you walk around and you stand on the shore of Galilee and, you, and, and, and you, you read the scriptures and you read how Jesus restored Peter on the, on the shores of Galilee, you, 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 you picture Jesus walking on the water in the storm and you stand on these special places. Why are they special? I'll tell you why. Because God came near and he walked right here. It's holy. We call it the Holy Land. The tabernacle that was asked by God to be built for him. It's a physical structure that can be seen for these children of Israel who are wandering in the desert. And this is the reason. I want you to think about why would God want a tent of his own? He doesn't need a tent. He doesn't, he's, it's not like, man, it's chilly out here. Can someone build me a tent? I'm cold. Why would he do that? You need to understand every act of God to his people is an act of grace. Even discipline is an act of grace. And so God says, build me a tent. Not, not, not so that because I need one, it's because I want one. Not because, not because I got to watch over these people, make sure they don't screw up. No, he wanted to be among them because as they are wondering, as they are, as they are walking through the desert, as they are having issues in life and frictions and, and questioning God and doubting things. He wants them to have a physical reminder that when they look over and they see the tabernacle, that's God's tent, that this, that God is with them and will never leave them nor forsake them. This physical structure of a tabernacle was to be seen with human eyes to keep the people understanding. I know you're going through a lot. I know you're struggling right now. I know you're, you're in this very difficult season, but take heart, I am with you. God promised Abraham. Do you know what God promised Abraham? He said, I will be with you. I will never leave you. And then God promised Isaac. Down the, the lineage of Abraham, I will be with you. I will never leave you. God promised Jacob, I will never leave you. This tabernacle that we're looking at today is the place that God will come in a unique, peculiar way, and he will be with his people. He will give them an assurance. It's a tent, which means, which means it's mobile. It means it's, it's portable. And as they wander, as they go, as they doubt, they, they go, hang on. Remember, here's the promise. God has never left us, and he has never forsaken us. Now, this is an old covenant promise that we know was fulfilled in Jesus, which we'll look at later. It fulfilled in Jesus that when Jesus sent out his disciples, he said, you go and remember this, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. That same promise in Christ is now to you that regardless of where you are, God will never leave you nor forsake you. So you have a tent as a reminder to the children of Israel that God will never leave them. Even if they feel lost, they look over, hang on, God's with me. I'm never lost. But I want you to, to just think for a moment, the tent, the tabernacle was set aside, it was created to remind them that God's presence is with them. But if we were to go inside the tabernacle today, we were to go inside and, and there's all this little interesting instructions when, when God is laying out the, the tabernacle. You're like, what does that mean? But what we need to understand is that 
Inside this tabernacle were these pieces of furniture, but they were all pointing to, a, to the same thing. They were demonstrating that God's presence is with his people in the midst among his people. This, God's presence is such a big deal. Such a big deal. But, but we, we have to understand, we, we can't miss the, the original plan that God was, was doing, why he created again, let's go back, why he created mankind again to be in relationship with him. So here you have almost, it's almost like you have a shadow or a copy or a type of the Garden of Eden. As you look further into the tabernacle, it actually was designed as a copy of the Garden of Eden, to remind God's people, I'm leading you back to when we were close. I'm leading you back to when there were no barriers. I'm leading you back to the place in which we can fellowship and be together. It's not time yet, but this is to remind you that I'm working my plan. And this original plan began in God's heart from Eden to restore us back into his presence. Ultimately, so there is no separation between us and God. So in these, in these instructions about the, about the tabernacle, there's instructions about curtains, about cherubims. Cherubims are to be woven into the curtains. It's, it's, a, it's again, I want you to catch this. It's a reminder that of the paradise that has been lost. They were aware of the paradise that was lost in Eden. And so there is cherubims on the curtains of the most holy place. And so it was constructed and, and written to model Eden, just as you know, when, when they came out of the garden, God set, what, two cherubims at the entrance to the garden. This is a, it's a model, it's a picture. And so though God's goal and then I'm going to get into some of these details. Though God's goal was ultimately, ultimately, to remove all separation between God and us, we're at the tabernacle in Exodus, and it wasn't time yet. Humanity wasn't there yet. There were actually divisions around the tabernacle. There was a courtyard, there was a holy place, and there was the most holy place And what's interesting is they come to the most holy place. They couldn't approach the most holy place. The priest could not go in until there was a sacrifice for them to go in. Which means, again, blood sacrifice. And if you're going to come into this presence, you must approach him under the blood of a sacrifice. And that holiness is veiled without that sacrifice. So I want to quickly look at the tabernacle in the Old Covenant. In the most holy place of what was called the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, it said we see in Exodus 40, there were three things. And those three things were there to be placed there at the, at, at the end of their journey to remind them of the faithfulness of God. And there was a gold bowl or pot with manna, which God provided manna for them. It came from the, every morning. There was fresh manna. They could eat it. It was daily. It was a daily thing. They would try to store it. It would go rotten. God says, I want you to trust me. I want you to know that I'm, I'm good. I'm good enough. I can meet your needs tomorrow. And he was proving to him his faithfulness. 
But he said, I want you to put that in the Ark of the Covenant. It was a box. Aaron's staff was also in there. And we'll look at that in just a moment. The Ten Commandments, the stone tablets were in there. And so they were to be placed there as a testimony of God's faithfulness. And so the Ark of the Covenant, this place, is where God will meet Moses. It's the place where God's presence dwelt the most. Also, the ark, though, was set up in a way that no one could touch it. Because according to numbers, they would die. Now, when people see this, they say, see, God, God wants to kill us. No. God wants to be among us. And because he is holy and we are, we are broken, he came and set up all this, 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 the tabernacle to be as close to us as he possibly could get without killing us. Because of who he is, because he is holy and we, we are sinful. And so, but he's demonstrating this is a first step into the ultimate goal. That God would come and dwell among the people. See, many people think, see, God, God is, he's in his tent He's in his tent, and he, he, he has to protect himself from us because ooh, we're, we are, we're gross. No, 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 no. God was in his tent, and this was set up to, to protect us from his presence because God wants to be as near to you as he can possibly get. But now in the new covenant, all the restrictions of why he doesn't come near is because of us not actually realizing he wants to and us not inviting him to come near. But God wants to meet you where you are. And so you have the day of atonement in the tabernacle. This was to make sacrifices on behalf of the people and they would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, which the mercy seat was above the ark. And this only happened once a year. Once a year that God would commune with his people as he did in the garden but it would be done first because blood was shed. There was a sacrifice. Also, it was saying this. It was saying that God, you cannot come near to God unless there was a mediator because no common person could go into the presence of God. It had to be a certain group of people, the priests. Only the priests could go in. So there was this understanding. We can't come to God without a sacrifice. We can't come to God without a mediator. Later, after the Israelites were in the promised land, there's a fascinating account when the Israelites went to, went to war. And maybe you'll remember the story. It's a, great, it's a great story. Went to war with the Philistines. And the Israelites were in idolatry. They were in disobedience. And so they thought this, hey, how about this? Let's take the Ark of the Covenant and let's move it to the front of the line. Because we need some help. It was going to be a little, they were going to use God's power to, it, for their own purposes and so as they got to the front of the line, it fell into the Philistines' hands. They lost. Israel retreated. The Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant. And so the Philistines took the Ark back to their God, back to the temple of Dagon. It was, it was symbolic. And how they positioned it is though the God of Israel, Yahweh, was bowing to their God, Dagon. Well, the funny thing is, is the next day, as the people of Ashdod entered, entered the temple, they found that their God had fallen over. And their God had fallen over in a way that it was bowing to Yahweh. They stood, they stood him up. Like at some point, are you going to get the clue? Come on, guys. 
Anyway, they stood him up. And the following morning they entered and the statue of Dagon had fallen again. But this time his head and his hands had been crushed, crumbled. But what is that a symbol of? I want you to catch this for a moment. The Israelites, when they put the ark at the front, they lost. They deserved to go and be taken into slavery. They deserved to become the Philistines, Philistines slaves. But instead, the ark of God took the punishment for them. The ark of God went into a, a land that was not their land. The ark of God went before them, took the punishment. So this is the ark. And also in the, in the tabernacle is the table for the bread. So as you're standing in the most holy place, you step out and there's a table and there's bread. And these are all specific instructions from God. This wasn't, hey, God said, I want to come near, come on, build me something and, and I'll let you know if I approve of it. No, no, this was not about their works. This is about, God says, I'm going to come near and this is how I want you to do it. I need this and this and this and this and this and this. I need it this way. I need the loops this way. I need the sockets this way. I need them this color. I need, they're like, oh gosh, uh, what, what's going on here? What God is saying, this is not about you making a way for me to come. This is about me telling you, this is exactly what I want you to do so that I can come. This was not by their works. This was all God's idea. It was all by his grace to come and dwell. But this table of bread as you step out of the holiest of holies was a table and it held a very significant thing. It wasn't the table that was significant. It was what was on the table that was bread. It held 12 loaves of bread symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. And the bread was a reminder that every tribe played a role. Now listen to me. Every tribe played a role in God's family. That there is no sub-family member in the family of God. What that means is this, that, that God is the one who will, he, he is, there is always a seat at the table for his family. There's always a seat at the table. Many of us, we live in this shame and this guilt that, no, I can't come near to God. No, no, no. This, this table tells us there is always a seat at God's table for you. But also, it reminded them that it is in God's presence that there is provision. It is in God's presence in the tabernacle that God will always provide. This is all these things that are pointing, and, and I'm, I'm gonna, I'll land the plane so that we can tie all this together. It's, it feels a little detailed, but it's important. The bread was the bread that God provided also for the priests that served in the temple. So it was, they were to go and eat of it every day. They would replace it with 12 other loaves. What this was telling the priests is that God is the one who will provide for you your daily bread. Jesus, as he was teaching, he said, listen, don't worry about tomorrow, what you will eat or what you will drink. Look at the birds. Do they toil and wring their hands and get all freaked out and what are you going to have tomorrow? No. God wants you to know that if you are in him, if you are part of his family, he will provide for you. He's your provider. And that's why this daily bread is connected to this manna that God wouldn't let them keep it. He wouldn't let them save it because he wants them to know I am good for my word every single day. When you wake up, my mercies are new every morning for you. You don't have to worry. You don't have to freak out. God's your provider. 
Many of us don't experience that because we don't see it. We don't believe it. And we take it in our own hands and we bear the burden of it all. It doesn't mean we don't work. It doesn't mean we don't do what we're called to do. But God is our provider. And Jesus said, when you pray, you pray, give us this day our what? Daily bread. In other words, God is present at every day of your life. His arm is not too short to come and heal you and to provide for you. His presence is to be your provision in your life. As you step back from the table directly across the tabernacle, what's called the golden lampstand. This wasn't a little lampstand. It was 75 pounds of pure gold which they, more than, more than likely, they got it from Egypt when they left. And they took it and they took the plunders of it and they melted it down and they made this. This would be very similar to what we would know as a menorah. It's to provide, listen to me, it's to provide light in the midst of darkness. It was to illuminate whatever what, whatever what was in front of it. And the priests of the temple were to keep this lamp burning continually. But they were signifying, it was signifying the continual presence of God. Again, reminding the people that he will never leave them. He will never forsake them. His light is always shining. His light is always present. He is always with us. And that every moment of these pieces of furniture is to remind those people and us people that God in his presence is there for us. He is a constant in our lives. And I just, my heart for you today, that you would be aware that God is there. When you wake up in the morning, God is there. His presence is there. When you come to worship, his presence is here. He is meeting your needs. He's providing for you. He's shedding light on your heart and your soul. He's bringing deliverance to you. He is providing the way. He is working in your life. Then there is the bronze altar. This was seven and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and four and a half feet high. Another reminder that, and all that altar, they would make sacrifices, but another reminder that people can only come before God and his presence by only way of sacrifice. Something must pave the way. Another piece of furniture was the court, or excuse me, not furniture, the the layout was the court of the tabernacle. It was an area outside of the tabernacle, the courtyard. And yes, God dwelled in the middle of the Israelite encampment, but it was clear that he was still separate from them. There were walls and there were curtains that separated his presence from him. Yes, he is holy, but yes, he is merciful because he is there, but yet yet there are still some boundaries. There are still some, some things that, that are, keep us distant And this was another picture of God is beginning to restore mankind back to his presence. The last account of of God's presence, he showed up in Mount Sinai. So we see Mount Sinai, God came down. There were different actual levels that you could go up to God. Only Moses could go up all the way. And then the elders could go up halfway. Then the rest of the people were like, I ain't going up there. But again, it it was to say God is near But not everybody can come. So there were limitations that God had set that keep them from interacting with God. There were limitations. 
It was a reminder to the people. Just catch this for me, with me for a second. It was a reminder for the people over and over and over and over again. This person called the high priest has to go on my behalf. And so this was God taking a step towards regaining his people back into his presence. There was a chasm. There was a breach of sin that caused our separation. And God was beginning to overturn that slowly. This is a step towards realizing the final dwelling place for man and God is to be together. But it continues over and over again throughout the Old Covenant, demonstrating no one can come to God. No one can make it back to providing for themselves. No one can provide their own bread for themselves. No one can can be in God's presence. But God has made a way, and it's through the sacrifice of an animal. It's through the, the blood of a sacrifice And the fulfillment, though, so here we are at the tabernacle. We went through all those details. Remember, every major event is pointing to Jesus. I've heard someone say, well, the theme of the Bible is sin. Maybe if you could say it's the theme of the Bible is how God sent his son Jesus to crush sin so that mankind can come back into God's presence. But that's what we think that God is just, he's, listen, it's a, he hates sin, he hates this, he hates that. Hang on a second, hang on, hang on, hang on. Actually, the theme of the Bible is God loves us so much that he did what he did. So how did Jesus fulfill the tabernacle? How did Jesus do this? What was the picture? What was, what, how were these pointing to Jesus? How did the manna under the, in the Ark of the Covenant point to Jesus? Jesus said, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it was written, he gave them bread from heaven. Jesus then said to them, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he, meaning himself, Jesus, who comes down from heaven and gives the life, and gives life to the world. Jesus said that I am the bread of life. That was a picture of what Jesus, and if you eat of this, you will never go hungry again. You can come into the presence of God. Aaron's staff was in the, was in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, Aaron was a, was a priest. And these priests could only go before God. And there was the staff that had butted. What happened is there was some disagreement whether Aaron was an actual priest or not, or he could really do it or not. So they said, okay, fine. Everybody throw your, your staff down. And then Aaron's is the one that butted to prove he is the one true priest. And just like Jesus came and he is out of all the people, out of all the, the priests, out of all the of Judaism and the law, who could really go before God? Jesus has proven that on the cross and through his resurrection, he is the high priest chosen by his father from all eternity. And that rod signifies that there was only one priest 
that could go and pay the price and go before God as a mediator between, before all of us. And he, after he mediated and he opened the way, he sat down at the right hand of the Father so that now we can come into the presence of the Father. He's the great high priest. Hebrews 9.24, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which were just copies. Everybody say copies. So don't forget, when you get enamored with copies, ask yourself this, maybe I should check out the real thing. When you get enamored with the tabernacle and the temple and the, the, all this kind of stuff, the landmark and this, now hang, hang on. They were copies of the true thing, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus fulfilled the Ten Commandments. Jesus came to finish the Old Covenant. Uh, really, he came to build upon it. So he finished it. He, no one had kept the law perfectly. No one. So did, did, God, did God give the Ten Commandments? Let's stick, stick with the Ten Commandments. Did he give the Ten Commandments? Because now, now you, to keep us from lying? Or did he give the Ten Commandments because we had already lied? Did he give you the Ten Commandments because to keep us from committing adultery? Did he really give them because we had already had a lustful thought in our minds? And Jesus said, if you have a lustful thought, it's the same as committing adultery. Was the law given to keep us from sinning or was the law given because we were sinning? So in other words, we had already broken the law before the law was ever given. We already violated it. But Jesus came and he lived a perfect life for you and for me, all humanity. He followed everything perfectly. He was perfect. Not only did he follow these moral laws, he followed all the sacrificial laws perfectly. Jesus came to finish and build upon the old covenant and make the new covenant, which he says the night before he is crucified. This is the blood of the new covenant. The ceremonial, the sacrifices, the other elements of the old covenant law were, I want you to catch this, were, Hebrews 10:1. the law is only a shadow. Everybody say shadow. Of the good things that are coming. Not the realities themselves. Not the realities. I want you to catch it. Do not get enamored with, with shadows and copies. Get enamored with the real thing, and that's Jesus. The tabernacle and later the temple. All of these were built human hands. Yes, they were ordained by God because they were pointed to a greater reality. But you need to understand something. The law had an expiration date, which some people don't understand. It had an expiration date. Hebrews 9.10 says, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Everybody say new order. You could also say new covenant. So they applied for a time. Everybody say, for a time. And that time ended when Jesus rose from the dead. He had satisfied them perfectly. He rose from the dead. He died and he rose from the dead. Jesus came on the scene. He obeyed the law perfectly. 
that man cannot obey. He fulfilled every sacrificial regulation. But he didn't, he didn't go and make sacrifice in the temple or in the tabernacle because he actually himself was the sacrifice. It wasn't on a brazen altar. It was on a wooden cross that was demonstrated and put before all humanity. And he died on the altar of, a, of God, on the altar of a heavenly place that was signified for him to die in our place, not, for, not to do the sacrifice, but to be the sacrifice so that there would never need to be another sacrifice for us. It's the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. How did he fulfill the table for the bread? Well, Jesus says, John 6, 30, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. How is he the golden lamp? Stand, Jesus fulfilled this as he said, I am the light of the world. Just as Israel was called to reflect God's light to the nations, now we, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we then become the light, reflecting the light and the glory of Jesus to a lost and hurting and dying generation around us. John 8, 12, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have light of life. How did he fulfill the bronze altar? Jesus fulfilled the bronze altar by becoming the ultimate sacrifice, not just for the Israelites, not just for the Jews, but for the people of the whole world. He's the only one who could fully and completely bridge the gap between man and God. There's a belief, it's a, it's a it's a false doctrine. It's called dual covenant theology that people believe that, that Jews don't need to accept Christ because they are covered under, under the Abrahamic covenant. But what, again, because they isolate events, they don't understand it's the heart of God from the beginning. Just like the people of Israel weren't responsible to obey the law until the law was given, and then there were consequences. So before, no law. God says, now, here's the law. You need to do it this way. Now there's consequences. Just like then, there was no tabernacle, no way to worship God the way that he laid out then. Tabernacle, this is how you worship me. Yeah, but we, you didn't have that before. It doesn't matter, I have it now. Oh, it's time for you to obey. And then from there, then Jesus came as then the fulfillment of all these things. So again, at this point, all are responsible. The only way to be saved is through the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And to, and to believe in a second covenant is what's called a heresy. What heresy means is this. If you proclaim it or if you believe it, it will, it will assure your position in hell. So you can have wrong doctrine, but a heresy is a belief or a false teaching that actually can lead people to hell. Jesus. Hebrews 10. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest, remember we're looking back to the tabernacle and the temple, stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take sins away. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God and it was over, done, paid for. 
The court of tabernacle. How did, how did Jesus fulfill this? Matthew 27, 51, when Jesus had cried out loud in a loud voice, he's on the cross, he cries out in a loud voice, and he gave up his spirit. Now look, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. From top to bottom. No more separation. No more distant. No more special people that can only go into God's presence. No more, no, no more Moseses, no more, no, 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 no more. It's that he tore all, he knocked down, he kicked down every separation. And it wasn't because he was doing it because God was mad. He was doing it because it was God's idea to get you back into relationship with him. And that's how he did it. It's the grace of God. <laughs> Everything of the old covenant is the grace of God pointing to God's grace, pointing to a greater reality, pointing to what Jesus would come and do. Listen, friends, we don't worship types and shadows and get enamored with them. We don't, we don't bow and, and, and find all this weird mysticism. No, we bow at the feet of Jesus Christ and we declare you are the one and only and I give you my life. And so all of us have this understanding that maybe we can't come that close to God. And I want you to know something today. Or actually even when you hear this, you said God's presence in the tabernacle, God's presence in the temple. Paul writes this. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Don't you know that God, through his son Jesus, has tabernacled on the inside of you? And the same dwell is the same idea that God wanted to come down and dwell amongst. But now in the new covenant, God comes and dwells in us inside of us. He possesses us. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the same spirit that is in you. And so because of that, because of that, friends, Hebrews 4.16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It was an act of grace. And what many people do is they resist the presence of God because they are functionally not perfect. But you need to understand you have access to God's presence not because you are functionally perfect, because you are, but because you are positionally perfect. Before God, you are, you are positioned as righteous and holy. Scripture says that you, through Christ, have been clothed in the righteousness of God. The righteousness of Christ Jesus. So you are what's called, you are in Christ. So if, if, if you have this container and I take something and I put in it, you don't see what's in it, but you see what 
the, it's clothed in, which is what God, when he looks at you, he sees the perfection of Jesus. But we say, no, but I can't go into God's presence because I fail, because I sinned, because I know I wasn't supposed to. And why did I listen to my flesh? And why? I can't go because I'm not holy. And God says, you are holy because I have positionally made you holy through my son, Jesus Christ. And so now you can come boldly into the throne room of what? grace not judgment grace God looks at you he goes that's my boy that's my girl come here and we stay on the outside we stay on the outer courts and God is dying to see us dying to minister to you wanting you to be healed wanting you to be restored wanting you to find peace wanting you to walk in your victory wanting you to receive and wanting to break off stuff in your life that you can't break off yourself but we stay on the outer courts and go oh god i'm not worthy i'm not worthy and he says that's why i sent jesus because now you are so get over here boy and let's do some talking that's what he says God has encounters for you, and he wants to meet you. He wants to provide his presence at the Ark of the Covenant and fill you with power. He wants to be the bread that satisfies you and meets all of your needs. He wants to, to be the light in which you reflect in your functionally brokenness, but in your, in your positionally holiness before him, that you have a purpose in your life. And he says, it's time to come on in. You're under the new covenant. Friends, God invites you. It's time we step forward. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you are. Lord, I ask you right now that you would give all of us an understanding of our position. Not of our function, not of our flaws on the outside, but of our position on the inside. You look at us with great delight and say, I want to meet with you. I have come and tabernacled among you. And so, Lord, today we make a decision that I'm no longer going to stay on the outer courts. I'm running in. I'm running in to your presence with my brokenness, with my imperfection with my addictions, with my shadows of my past that just can't get out of my mind, with my mistakes, with my failures, with my divorces, with my abortions, with my anger, with my bitterness, with my sickness, I approach your presence by the grace of God, by the work of Jesus. And I begin to experience 
what it means to be confident in your presence. I begin to open my heart to receive that I am accepted. I begin to open my mind to know even though I have failed, I'm still righteous before you. And because of that, I will begin to receive healing of the deep areas of my life, in my mind. I no longer have to perform. Some of you, you are crippled with performance. Anytime you think that there is a moment you didn't do something right, you, you go into a tailspin of trying to fix it or trying to justify it or trying to... God says, stop. Come to me. Find your rest in my presence. Lord, today, we take the step, and we thank you for who you are. Just remain with your heads bowed for a moment. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus into your life, and you recognize that he has gone before you and paved the way, and you want to receive the forgiveness and cleansing of sin, and you recognize that you need it and you're a sinner, just raise your hand right where you are right now. God's offering this to you today. God bless you. Thank you. Just hold it up high. This is a special moment here. Don't let it go by. Thank you. Put your hands down. God bless you. Anyone else? Before we move on, raise your hand just really quick. Raise it up. Put it back there. God bless you. Thank you. I'm going to lead you in a prayer that just acknowledges that you need Jesus and you need him to come and make you brand new. Say, Lord Jesus, Cleanse me of my sins. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for raising from the dead. Thank you for doing it in my place. I put my trust and I put my hope in what you have done, not in what I have done. And from this moment forward, I will live from my position. And that is righteous and holy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And we give the Lord a hand today for his faithfulness. If you gave your life to Jesus today, you can scan the code on the back of the seat, or if you want any information about us as a church, if you want to know what's going on, if you want to know how you can be involved, if you want to know what we're about, you can scan that, and you can look all through that. Friends, I love you. You are very dear to me, and I'm grateful to be able to be going through the Word the way that we are. Let's all stand to our feet, and let me pray a blessing over you. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray you bless your people. You'd strengthen them. You'd lead them. May they leave here today walking boldly, knowing that they are covered and holy and righteous because of you, not because of them. Because if it was because of them, they could boast about it, but it's because of you. Therefore, no man shall boast. And so, Lord, we leave here receiving you knowing we are back in relationship with you, fresh and new. In Jesus' name, we all say amen and amen. If you